You're listening to a sermon from Midtown Presbyterian Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about Midtown and its ministry, please visit us at midtownpres.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. prayer i heard a couple people say trespasses we got a couple trespass people in the room nice nice uh both of those words can work in the prayer by the way uh we we're we're debt sort of people i hear at midtown so hey guys it's gonna be with you you guys are my favorites just want you to know i like being with you every sunday i'm glad you're here with us now guys we have become a people consumed with comfort And there's one word that can summarize this fact perfectly. Sweatpants. Sweatpants. Over the last few years, the U.S. has embraced a new clothing trend. Many of you are familiar with this. Athleisure fashion. Yeah? It's where you purchase and wear clothes that are designed for high-octane activity, like working out, and you use them to lay around. (laughs) We don't use sweatpants to sweat anymore. We use them to lay around. And how perfectly ironic, right? The things that we designed to push us into challenging growth now make us soft and comfortable. According to a recent article from the Boston Globe, the U.S. is the largest sportswear market in the world, but nine out of ten American consumers say they use their athletic clothing outside of athletics. We're obsessed with comfort. And it's not just about sweatpants. Everywhere we look, we're being actively trained to believe that A life of peace and joy and rest will come when we can seize as much comfort and security as possible in every area of our lives. Our foods teach us this. Fast food, it's packed with artificial salt and fat and sugar, all in the name of momentarily feeling good at the expense of our long-term health. Comfort in the moment. We're taught to steer clear of the discomfort of boredom at all costs, right? You can't be bored, so have a screen in front of you. Make sure that you're always taking something in. There's a a cultural commentator named Van Jones who calls many of our public universities ideological comfort spaces. He says that while it's definitely important to make sure that people are free from genuine fear and abuse, American culture takes it one step further. And we assert that if someone or something doesn't make us feel good or comfortable, or if people around us do something or say something that makes us a little uncomfortable, then we need to either silo away from them or push them out of their role. We practice, as JFK once put it, the comfort of opinion without the discomfort of thought. But here's what's wild. Even after all of this obsession with comfort, we still don't feel satisfied in our lives. One of the wealthiest countries ever to have existed, and we still struggle with loneliness, with depression, with anxiety, with hopelessness. According to a recent poll, more than 50% of Americans under the age of 30 said they regularly feel experiences of loneliness and hopelessness. And then what do we do when we feel those things? We try to comfort them out of us, right? We medicate ourselves to feel better. Prescriptions for opioids like Oxycontin have skyrocketed in the last decade. And it's led to brutal consequences. Since 2010, opioid overdose deaths have increased by more than 300%. We are comforting ourselves into oblivion. And for many of us as Christians, that obsession with comfort has leaked into our spiritual lives sometimes accidentally. We live with sweatpants spirituality. This practice of following Jesus, that thing that was meant to make us grow and learn, it's something that we now use just to make us feel good. 
We love religious spaces with comforts that don't challenge us too much. Music that makes us feel good or speakers that make us feel good. People who look or sound or act or vote just like us. We prefer the soft, comfortable Jesus. You know the one that carries a little lamb in his hands? A pillowy white robe and long, beautiful hair. A Jesus who doesn't really challenge us or provoke us much. There's actually a pastor who founded a church that has expanded to include over 150,000 members worldwide. They're one of the most influential churches in recent Western history. And he was quoted as saying that their mission for every church service was to, quote, leave people feeling better about themselves than when they arrived. That was the goal of everything they did. We've been taught to build our own world of comfort and security. And the result is that we often live out this us-centric, therapeutic faith that exists purely to make us feel good. Welcome to church, you guys. Now, I think it's important to mention, in the middle of this kind of deluge of comfort, that Jesus did tell his followers that when we receive and embrace him in his life, we will find rest for our souls. He did refer to himself as the good shepherd, and he did say that his presence and power provides us peace in the midst of our lives. So if you're in this room and you're looking for peace or rest or love or grace, I want to be really clear that those are found in Jesus. You're in the right place. But it's also crucial for us to remember that that peace and rest and love and grace that he spoke about, it didn't equate to comfort and ease as we often identify it in our culture. He didn't promise us a health and wealth and prosperity sort of life. Instead, he often challenged his disciples in order to see him grow. He said that following him will mean that we are all in on receiving and being shaped by him and his priorities. And that that will often happen in the midst of uncomfortable situations, in the midst of insecurity. In many ways, Christ's mission was to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. To comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. And that's the exact notion that's at work in the passage we're going to read today. We're continuing in our teaching series here at Midtown during Lent called, You've Heard It Said, But Jesus Says to You. And this whole series has been about evaluating what we hear in the world, the messages or ideas or notions that we hear in our world, and then the things that Jesus says to us about where true life and peace and joy is found, what it looks like to participate in his kingdom. And today, we see Jesus indicating to us that true lasting peace in life is not found when you grasp your own comfort, when you grasp your own security. It's instead found in being all in on him, choosing to follow him and trust him in the midst of discomfort and insecurity. So if you have a Bible, friends, open it with me, or an app if that's easier for you. And we're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew. This is the first book in your New Testament. Matthew chapter 8 is where we're going to be, starting in verse 18. If you don't have a Bible, by the way, that's okay. The word's going to be behind me on the screen, so you can follow along there. Matthew chapter 8, starting in verse 18. Now, when Jesus saw great crowds around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. A scribe then approached and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of his disciples said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. A windstorm arose on the lake so great that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But Jesus was asleep. And they went and woke him up saying, Lord, save us, we're perishing. 
And he said to them, why are you afraid? You of little faith. Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the sea. And there was a dead calm. They were amazed, saying, what sort of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We arrive at this passage in Matthew chapter 8, fresh off of some of Jesus' most powerful teaching. He just finished up in chapter 7 his Sermon on the Mount. It's the most comprehensive block of teaching that we have in our Gospels from Jesus. And after this teaching, he walks down the mountain, and immediately the crowds are pressing in on him for healing, for comfort, for life. Thousands of people are showing up to listen to him and then to experience healing. And the rest of chapter 8, just before what we read, is all about Jesus responding to them, comforting the afflicted. He heals a man with leprosy. And then he heals a man who is paralyzed, and he heals that man who's paralyzed without ever actually having to see him. He heals him from a distance, socially distanced healing, Jesus is performing. And then he heals a woman who is deathly feverish and ill. So he's doing all of this work for people. And so naturally, many others are being drawn to Jesus. Crowds are coming to him to be comforted, to be healed. He's got this amazing, powerful ministry. But notice, in verse 18, what does Jesus do when the great crowd arrives and presses in? He leaves. He says, we're going away from the crowds. And that seems really counterintuitive to us today. Because we often assume that crowds are actually kind of the whole point of things, right? That the crowd is the goal and that the crowd validates our work in our life. And we know we're doing the right things when the crowd is coming to us. I mean, imagine if we were in charge of Jesus' ministry at this time. What would we do? For most of us, the obvious next move would be to double down on the crowds. We'd say, all right, this is amazing. Jesus, you're doing a great job. And so we're going to keep the crowds coming. We're going to build a mega healing center right here. And then we're going to have a drive through healing center over there, just off to the right. And then we're going to have a merch table over there with shirts and mugs and cups so that people can know all about our new healing center. That's what we do, right? Keep the crowds coming. Bring on the spectacle. But Jesus does none of that. Instead, as soon as the crowds show up, he picks up and leaves. Why? Why is Jesus missing this prime opportunity to build a mega ministry? He's refusing to become an influencer. Why? Because for Jesus, the ultimate goal of his ministry isn't a big crowd showing up for some sort of spiritual religious product. His kingdom isn't a collection of spiritual pep rallies focused on religious branding of comfort or security. The goal of Jesus' ministry is to make disciples. His goal is to create people who are all in, people who follow him in every part of his lives and in their lives and oftentimes into spaces of discomfort and insecurity. Jesus leaves the crowd so that people can follow him. And his leaving is a challenge for his disciples. It's a challenge to leave their own comfort and their own security behind for the sake of his kingdom and his way of living. And it's shown to us in this short story in three main ways. We see it in the hasty scribe, the hesitant son, and the harrowing storm. The hasty scribe, the hesitant son, and the harrowing storm. Like that alliteration? It's nice, right? I felt good about it this week anyway. But <laughs> thanks. Thanks for supporting me. Good job, <laughs> thanks, Drew. Thanks. First, the hasty scribe. Jesus tells his disciples that they're going to cross over the Sea of Galilee, which is the largest freshwater lake in Israel. It's about 13 miles north to south and about eight miles wide. 
So they're going to cross over one of the largest and deepest parts of the lake here. And as they're getting ready to go, from amidst the crowd, somebody shouts, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And at first glance, those words sound legit. It seems like this guy is really all in. But when you dig more deeply into his words, you find maybe some ulterior motives. Matthew actually wants us to see that while this guy might be caught up in some emotional or religious zeal in this moment, he needs some time for reflection on what it really means to follow Jesus for him. Some of his words indicate that he may not really know what this life of following Jesus is about. For instance, he refers to Jesus as teacher. And in that time, that was a respectful title. It indicated that you respected or admired Jesus in some way or another. But to call Jesus teacher didn't mean you were all in on following him. In fact, across the whole Gospel of Matthew, people who are really all in, his disciples always call him Lord, not teacher. In Matthew, the people who only call Jesus teacher are the sort of people who might like to listen to his teaching and say, oh, I can kind of put some of that in my life. I like to be a good person, and so I'll take some of these rules. But they're not people who really commit to Jesus. Even Judas called Jesus teacher, but he never called him Lord. And this teacher title, it actually makes sense for this guy when we learn his identity. He's a scribe, a religious professional, a Bible teacher in that day. And so in this passage, he seems to see Jesus as another great teacher, somebody he could learn from, and then he could maybe integrate some of his own teaching into his life. Basically, what he's doing is smart networking here. That's what's happening. This statement is actually kind of a resume pitch. In fact, the whole focus of his statement is on himself. Do you notice that? I will follow you. I can do it. I have a lot to offer in this situation. You can almost hear the sales pitch. It's like an interview. Hey, Jesus, it's great to meet you. I'm an esteemed and highly qualified religious professional, and I can see that you and your organization are going places, and I want to get in on the ground floor. My skills, my assets, they can be of great help to you. I'm a scribe. Here's my work experience. Here's my resume. Here's my letters of recommendation. I can follow you if you think it'd be helpful for you. This scribe, as well-intentioned as he might be, seems to see Jesus as another way to build security and comfort for himself. Maybe he's seeing Jesus in this moment as a self-help tool, someone who can give him a nice new moral checklist that he can follow to become a good person. Maybe he sees Jesus as a career advancement opportunity, right? The crowds are flooding to this guy, and maybe if I associate with this guy, I'll get some of those crowds. Maybe he just sees Jesus as an inspirational person who he could learn a couple things from and implement a couple things in his life. In any case, this is a hasty scribe eager to jump in, but it seems like he's still largely concerned with comfort and security on his end. And so, in classic Jesus fashion, he gives a super clear and non-cryptic response. No, that's not usually a Jesus move. He usually gives a response that forces you to think, right? He says, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Okay? Cool, cool, cool. Thanks, Jesus. What? Like, what does that mean? I don't understand. What he seems to be saying here to this man is that a true life of following him isn't going to lead to the sort of comfort and security that he thinks it will. It's not going to bring a nice, comfortable life or home. In fact, wild animals, foxes and birds, will have more comfort and security than Jesus and his followers. He's basically saying, look, before you jump on board, man, literally, in this case, right, jumping on board the boat, let me make one thing clear. We haven't booked our work conference at a five-star hotel across the lake. They don't have an open bar there with those little umbrellas that you put in drinks. In fact, where we're headed, I can't even promise you a nice hotel pillow. 
Jesus is simply telling the scribe what he's getting himself into, what it really looks like to follow him, what it really looks like to be a disciple. And he's not trying to step on his enthusiasm. He's just being honest with him. Hey, here's what this life looks like. You guys, following Jesus isn't a self-help tool on our way to making us feel more comfortable and secure in the world. It isn't a career advancement tool to give me more comfort in my job. It isn't even a nice moral checklist to make us feel better about being a good person. Following Jesus all over the Gospels means things like taking up a cross and dying to ourselves. It means confessing and repenting of sin. That's not comfortable. It means giving a lot of our money away. It means committing our lives to loving the unimpressive and the weak. It means giving up our power in order to be a humble servant. Following Jesus isn't something that leads us to more worldly comfort. It's actually something that leads us oftentimes straight into discomfort, a space where we will need to trust in the way and work of Jesus more deeply. And so the scribe is meant to make us ask, are we, as comfort-conditioned people, really willing to follow him? Have we, in our own lives, counted the cost of what this means? And then we hear about the hesitant son. Another voice rings out from the crowd. Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Now notice the title he gives Jesus. What's he call Jesus? Lord, right? That's a good word in the gospel. That is a word of somebody who is ready to follow Jesus. And that's why Jesus' response feels kind of intense and a little excessive, right? Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Follow me and let the dead bury their dead. Sheesh. Escalated quickly. Like, lighten up, Jesus. It's a little bit of overkill in this situation, right? The dead, literally, the dead bury the dead. Overkill. Like, what? Nice. Elizabeth, like that. <laughs> but seriously, how long could it take for this guy to bury his father, right? Like a day, maybe two days? Shouldn't Jesus give him a little bit of grace here? Isn't Jesus kind of being a jerk? Well, not quite. Because this phrase had a lot more meaning back then and in the Middle East even today than it does to us. It's a phrase that's still used. There's a Middle Eastern scholar named Kenneth Bailey who writes about this. This phrase doesn't mean my dad just died, let me spend a few hours grieving and doing funeral things. If that were true, he'd already be there, right? If his dad was already dead, he'd be at funeral things right now. What this phrase actually refers to is a season of life where people's parents are aging and where all of a sudden there's a lot of new responsibilities that they're trying to take on. They're trying to take on the family business or the trade, and life is just really busy. And so when people use that phrase, their parents actually probably aren't going to die for at least a few more years. What they're saying is that my life is packed with all sorts of other responsibilities. In other words, what this man is basically saying is, look, Jesus, I like all these things you're up to, so I'll follow you when things settle down a little bit. I just need to get a comfortable and secure place, and then, then I'll start following you. I don't have a t enough time right now. I'm really busy, but when I'm not so busy, when I have more time, I'll follow you. You guys, the phrase, I don't have enough time, is really a way of saying, I don't want to. The phrase, I don't have enough time, is really a way of saying, I don't want to. And we use that excuse all the time in our lives. We want to say that we follow Jesus. We like the idea of following Jesus, but then we put other things first, as this disciple does. And over weeks or months or years, Jesus ends up having no influence over our lives in any meaningful way. We say things like, I'll follow Jesus, I just need to get through the busy work or school season of my life, and then I'm all in. 
But then in that season, we meet someone we think is cute. And we're like, well, we want to get married. So let's get married. And then I'll follow Jesus. But then we get married. And then we're like, well, I want to spend time with my spouse before we start to have kids. So let me spend time with my spouse and enjoy this season. And then I'll follow Jesus. And then kids come into the picture. And you're like, I am sleep deprived and stretched thin. And let me just get my kids to school age. And then I'll follow Jesus. And then our kids get to school age. And then we think of all the sports and activities and families that we have to invest in. And we say, well, let me just get our kids through school. And then I'll have more time. And then our kids move out, and we think, man, I haven't talked to my spouse in what seems like decades. Let me enjoy this empty nest season of life. And all of a sudden, we're 60 years old, and we've never followed Jesus. We all do this. We all say, I'll, I'll do a little bit more. Just let me get past this thing. You guys, so often the tragedy of our lives is that we are moved to good and great goals to say or to be or to live a certain way and then that moment of passion passes. And we don't actually do or say or become the thing that we are called to be. In every one of us, there is a desire to become people whom Jesus has made us to be. To become people who really love our neighbors and really forgive our enemies and really practice generosity and give our lives away. That's in us, in every one of us. But there's also the simultaneous fear or indecision or procrastination that often prevents us from actually doing it. And oftentimes, our obsession with gaining our own comfort and security, it just heaps more fear onto that fear. It prevents us from really experiencing the wonder and joy and peace of life with Jesus. And so that's why Jesus is so urgent in his response here. He's not being a jerk. He's just saying that he sees in this man a fire to follow him, to leave behind all the deadness of the shallow worldly comforts. But he also sees the temptation to return to those things. And so Jesus is saying to him that all that's left in that world of comfort and security is dead people burying dead people. All of that is useless. It won't bring you true life. And if you really want true, lasting life and peace, then get in the boat with me. Follow me. And then, in a perfect transition, Jesus leads the disciples into the boat into a harrowing storm. It's as if, as soon as these disciples say, all right, I'm in, Jesus says, cool, you're out of your comfort zone and security. Right away. When he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. When we read about a boat here, don't picture like a multi-level yacht or boat as we often think of boats. It's actually a really small boat. We've actually discovered remains, archaeologists have, back in 1986, of a boat from the Sea of Galilee that was likely from Jesus' day. This is the base of the boat. It's about 27 feet long, so it's not terribly long, from about here maybe to close to that table there. Pretty short boat, about eight feet wide. And so a bunch of dudes are piling into this boat, and then as soon as they get out in the middle of the water, a storm hits. And the word that Matthew uses here to describe the storm, translated windstorm or gale, that's a fancy kind of older English word for it, the Greek word he uses here is seismos. That's where we get the word seismic like earthquakes. Think like a crazy, earth-shaking storm coming up seemingly out of nowhere. And as it turns out, storms like that are actually pretty common on the Sea of Galilee because it's a really geographically weird place. I've got a, a map here. I want to walk you guys through this. The Sea of Galilee is this kind of body of water right in the middle of the map. And just adjacent to that, to the west, is the Mediterranean Sea. Massive body of water. And you can see how everything's kind of green and lush near that sea. It's cooler, there's a lot of cool wind pressures that blow in from that side. But then on the other side of the Sea of Galilee is the Syrian desert. And if I expanded this out more, you'd see how much of a desolate wasteland it is there. 
and hot air moves in from that side. And all of that air meets over the Sea of Galilee. And there are some mountains around the Sea of Galilee that keep those air pressure movements tucked together. And when those things meet, it creates violent storms. This still happens even today. There's a scholar named W.M. Thompson who traveled to the Sea of Galilee and experienced this for himself. He wrote about it in his book, The Land and the Book. He talked about camping and the suddenness of the change of weather there. He said, we had to suddenly double pin all the tent ropes and frequently were obliged to hang with our whole weight upon them to keep the quivering tent from being carried up bodily into the air. The whole lake was lashed into fury. The waves repeatedly rolled up to our tent door, tumbling over the ropes. They came down suddenly, and often when the sky was perfectly clear. In other words, Jesus brings his disciples into the midst of a place that by its very nature is tumultuous, not comfortable and secure. And it's flinging the boat up and down. Water is pouring in, threatening to sink them. And all of the disciples are trying to do what they can to keep this thing from sinking. One of them's like taking their hands and scooping water out, right? The other one's like trying to balance the boat as best they can from capsizing. Another dude's just like, I'm giving up, and he's hurling over the edge like he's lost it. And eventually, the disciples come to a realization that they can't save themselves from this storm. It's too much for them. It's overwhelming them. They follow Jesus, and now they're smack dab in the middle of deathly discomfort and insecurity. They have no control over the situation. And so they go running and looking for Jesus. And what's Jesus doing? Sleeping. Are you kidding me, man? You're asleep? In the middle of a storm of moral proportions, there's waves crashing in and yelling and chaotic freakouts, and Jesus is just saying, yeah, this is a good time for a little siesta. What? There's two things that we learn about Jesus here from this nap. First, that Jesus is human and he gets tired, which seems kind of obvious, but it's important for us to remember. Jesus wasn't this like ghost who kind of floated in spiritually. He was a real human who experienced real tiredness like us. He just had a long work day. He's exhausted. Sleep is a good thing. Rest is a good thing. We are all made with limits. Jesus was made with limits. And naps are a good thing. Amen? Yeah. So that's the first thing we learned. But second thing is that Jesus had some sort of profound peace and rest in the middle of the storm. He's amazingly at peace in the middle of discomfort and insecurity. And notice, he's not ignoring the storm. He doesn't try to medicate the storm away. He's not trying to outcomfort the storm. He's just remarkably unintimidated by it. Why? Well, because he knows that the storm can't win. He has a profound trust and confidence in God. He knows that death and chaos and evil and turmoil, those don't, things don't get the final word. And do the disciples have that same sort of peace? No, they definitely don't in this story. They are frantic, and it's only after they've tried everything they can that they finally yell at Jesus to wake up. Lord, save us. We are perishing. And in Greek, it's actually just three words really kind of smashed together. It's really urgent. It's Lord, save, perishing. That's it. They don't use any other details. Lord, save, perishing. And so Jesus finally wakes up, but not urgently. Did you notice that? He kind of wakes up slowly, and he asks him a question. You can picture him like stretching out his arms in the middle of the storm, wiping some sleep from his eyes. And then he decides in the middle of the storm that this is a great time for a little teaching lesson, a little discipleship lesson for you. 
They're being flooded and nearly drowned, and Jesus says, why are you so afraid? And it might seem obvious. Like, do you see the waves? Like, you've been sleeping, man. I don't know if you've missed this. This is why we're afraid. Why are you so afraid? Don't overlook the power of that question. Jesus, before he calms the waves, which he does eventually do, but before he does, he takes the time to engage the discomfort and insecurity of the moment with them. He doesn't rush them into comfort or ease. He sits in the moment, in the storm with them, because he knows that the storm exposes who they truly are. That's what storms in our lives do for us. Crises in our lives do this. They expose where our true fears lie. They reveal our true character. They show us what we really trust in. Storms teach us about ourselves if we're willing to pay attention to them. And Jesus says, hey, pay attention to them. Let's talk about why you think you'll perish when I'm in the boat with you. Let's talk about why you're so scared. Let's talk about where your trust is really placed. And then he uses an affectionate nickname to refer to them. He calls them little faiths. That's what you of little faith means here. Little faiths. And it's affectionate. It's not really a diss. It's more, oh, these guys. Little faiths. And it's important to notice that the point of this passage isn't that their little faith is insufficient. See, Jesus does actually calm the storm, even with their little faith. Jesus says in other parts of the scripture that even the smallest amount of faith has the power to move mountains. If this story was about faith not being strong enough, then Jesus would say, sorry guys, come back when you got a little more faith, and then I'll help you. That's not what he does. Even the smallest of faith leads Jesus to respond. So this passage isn't about our amount of faith at all. It's about our willingness to turn to Jesus and trust him, even in our little faith, in the midst of discomfort and insecurity. Friends, what matters in our lives is not the amount of faith that we have. It's the direction in which our faith is pointed. What matters is not how much of a storm we find ourselves in. It's the person we seek and who meets us in the midst of it. What matters is not the amount of discomfort or insecurity we feel. It's the peace of Christ that sustains us in the midst of those things. Faith doesn't use cliches. It doesn't ignore or dismiss the storms of life. And it also doesn't mean that we live comfortable, storm-free lives. It means trusting that Jesus is equal to all occasions of storminess that we might encounter. It means turning to Jesus constantly in the midst of our storms and trusting that he can bring us true peace in the middle of it. And then, after this short lesson with the disciples, Jesus stands up and in an instant rebukes the waves in the sea, which is a really interesting term, right? He just speaks. doesn't need to do anything else, and it happens. This is the same word that's used in other passages in Matthew when Jesus rebukes a demon. He just says, you're gone, see ya. This thing that has all this power, no, 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 just for me, I speak and it's gone. No effort on Jesus' part here. And so you can imagine the disciples. They've just scrambled with all of their effort to fix this thing and couldn't, but Jesus stands up, says a word, and it's done. You can see them dripping with water, their eyes wide open in amazement at what's happened. One of them probably still has vomit on his tunic or something, right? And then they ask this provocative question. What sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? And that final line, final question, indicates a paradox that lies right at the heart of this passage. See, we already know at this point that Jesus is human, right? He just woke up from his nap. He's human. But he's also the one, apparently, who has final say over the winds and the sea. 
in the ancient world, those were the most powerful forces of, of discomfort and insecurity. It was chaos. And for many of us, we only know like 90% of the ocean, right? It's a place of chaos even for us. And they learned that Jesus has power over those things. And these men, they knew their scriptures really well. They knew that the scriptures only talked of one person who had power over the winds and the sea. It was God. It was God who separated the chaotic waters to form all of creation at the beginning. It was God who parted the waters for the Israelites to be liberated from their slavery. It was God, according to Psalm 106, who rebuked the sea and dried it up. He led them through the depths as through a desert. And it was the psalmist in Psalm 124 that said, if the Lord had not been on our side, the flood would have engulfed us. The torrent would have swept over us. The raging waters would have swept us away. They know who has power over the water, and so they're awestruck here. They're taking big, dry gulps because they're starting to realize who Jesus is. He is God-made flesh. He's God amidst us. The all-powerful God of the universe became human. And so Matthew ends the story with this question because he wants us as readers to ask ourselves the same thing. He wants us to ask who we think this man really is. And guys, the way we answer that question will dictate the rest of our lives. It will dictate beyond the rest of our lives. We can answer that question like the hasty scribe. We can call Jesus teacher and take things that we like about him and just use his morality to make ourselves better people. We could answer that way. We could also answer like the hesitant son. We could call him Lord, but then really hold back from making him Lord over every area of our lives. We could just kind of well, follow Jesus when it's convenient for us. Or we can answer that question by getting into the boat. We can answer that question not by grasping in our own comfort or security, but by following Jesus wherever he leads us even if that means giving up comfort and security. Because we know that when the wind and the waves of sorrow blow, the calm presence of Christ is with us. We know that when doubt is pouring over the sides of the boat, that there is real safety in the presence of Christ. Every storm that might shake our hearts is a place where Jesus can meet us, will meet us, is with us where we, in trusting in him, can find true, lasting peace in life. So will we get into the boat here at Midtown? Because Jesus has an amazing, life-changing, powerful adventure waiting for us. We have to ask ourselves, will we get in the boat? Let's pray.